In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So this is really where the course begins. We're talking about baptism tonight. And uh, I'm going to start off with more or less a little bit of a list, so bear with me on this. Just some general uh, facts about the sacrament of baptism before we dive into the biblical text, looking at the background for it. Uh, We'll look at the Old Testament passages, and we'll look at a couple of New Testament passages that comment on the Old Testament passages. And then we'll look at, you know, what Jesus did with baptism and how it's uh, perceived in the New Testament, okay? So, first of all, uh, baptism. The word comes from the Greek baptizo, which means immerse, to bathe, and to wash, okay? And remember what we said about the sacraments, of course, the definition of a sacrament. It's a sign that get, that's instituted by Christ to give grace, right? But it's not just merely a sign. It's a sign that does the thing that it signifies. So baptism means to wash, so it washes the soul. All right, now, in terms of the minister, who can actually give the sacrament of baptism? The ordinary minister is someone with holy orders, bishop, priest, deacon, right? Uh, in the East, it's just the bishop and priest. The deacon, not so much, um, because they don't have, well, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but in extreme cases, this is what's important. In extreme cases, the church allows anybody to, bapti- to baptize, as long as what their intention is to do what the church does. So, you know, if somebody's near death and they request somebody who's not even a Christian, you know, or somebody of another faith, an atheist or, or um, even like a Muslim or something, and they request baptism and they tell them how to do it, it would still be a valid baptism, okay, as long as their general intention is to do what the church does with baptism, okay? Uh, the church gives the widest possible latitude to that because baptism is so incredibly important. Right? It is the most important of the sacraments because it's the gateway into all of Christianity and all the other sacraments. It's the doorway into Christianity. All right? And we'll explain why here in a little bit. So in extreme circumstances, anybody can baptize as long as they have the intention of doing what the church does. Now, uh, the recipient obviously is someone who is not baptized, right? Uh, but has the desire to be baptized. Um, Now, in terms of children, the desire is on the part of the parents or the legal guardians, right? Whoever is responsible for that. And the faith involved in the request for baptism is uh, from the church itself. It's the faith of the church, which is the backbone of the sacrament. Now, in terms of the elements, what do you need besides the minister and the person? You need, obviously, water, right? But real water. You know, you can't use milk or beer, uh, as fun as that would be, you know. But, you know, it has to be actual water. You know, if it's muddy water, that's fine. But the, the majority of what you're using has to be real water. And you have to have 
the, that's the matter. Remember, we talked about matter and form, right? We'll mention that with all the sacraments. So the matter is water, and the form is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You know, pouring the water or immersing uh, the person underwater during this, okay? So either is, is valid, you know, whether it's sprinkling on the head uh, or submersion. All right, the idea is washing, you know, the symbolic effect of washing. That's what conveys the sacramental grace. Okay, so the effects. What happens when you baptize someone? Well, it turns out a lot. All right, let me just read through a few things here, and we'll get into this more as we go along with the different biblical passages that support this. The forgiveness of sins, number one, right? The forgiveness of sins, both the original sin we get from Adam and actual sins. If you're an adult and you have actual sins on your soul, they are all washed away with baptism. And it's not just, you know, taking away. It adds something. So sanctifying grace, right? It's the divine life given to each of us in baptism. And what does that mean? It means the indwelling of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now dwell in your soul. Remember what we talked about last time when we talked about the fall, right? There was a rupture between God and man. The two were one, now they are separate, so we need atonement, right? The, the relationship between God and man needs to be healed. And this is the mechanism by which the grace is conveyed to the person to restore that union. All right, so the indwelling of the Trinity and uh, the word that's used to bring someone back into a right relationship with God is justification. So you are justified. Uh, in original sin, before original sin, Adam was said to have original justice, right? He, had, he was created in a relationship with God, and through his sin, that relationship was broken. And because it was broken, any children he had after that were born without that relationship, right? They were born out of grace, disgraced. All right, so justification. Uh, we're given the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And one that's extremely important is we are made sons and daughters of God, right? Sons and daughters of God, meaning we have entered into the covenant family of God. We talked a lot about the covenant last time, right? This is the gateway into that covenant. We are no longer, well, let me put it this way. Adam was a son of God, um, but not by nature, okay? He was a son of God as a creature, right? Jesus is God's son by nature, okay? He is, by his very being as the word, he is God's son. We talked about that with the Trinity last time. Well, in the incarnation, God the son becomes man. And so, you know, we, we lost the grace with Adam, but when we come back in, it's through Christ, who is by nature God's son. Um, so we are truly God's son in Christ, okay? Because of the relationship Jesus has with the Father, we tap into that, all right? So, the covenant relationship with God, um, 
Oh, and one last thing. The church talks about the seal of the sacrament. There's three sacraments that have a special character to them that is imprinted into the soul. Uh, the soul itself is changed by these three sacraments. Okay, and it only happens once, right? So the sacrament of baptism cannot re be repeated. And we receive an imprint on the soul. Um, the, the word used is the seal, and it comes from the, the rings that they used to use to seal a document. It had an imprint on it, and you would drip wax on the document, and you would seal that document, right? That signified that it's coming from you. It has official authority behind it. Right? It has that character from that uh, signet ring that is imprinted on that document saying, this is my signature. Right? Well, in essence, that's what God does to the Christian when he is baptized. He imprints the soul of that person. They are reconfigured at the level of the soul towards Christ. Right? So they become a Christian at that point. So you know, that's permanent on the soul. So even if somebody re later rejects Christ and goes to hell, they still have that seal on the soul, as bad as that would, would seem. Um, so baptism bears that character. It can be received only once. Uh, confirmation is the other one. And holy orders. Those are sacraments that bear this seal that cannot be repeated. Uh, and we'll talk about the others as we go along here. But let me just say this in the beginning. There are three sacraments that are considered the, the sacraments of initiation that fully make you a Christian. Right? Baptism is the doorway which gets you into the rest of the sacraments. It makes you a Christian. But there are two others that support it and strengthen your character as a Christian. Right? So you're not fully developed as a Christian unless you have all three of these. It's baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. Okay? So again, we'll, we'll talk about those as we go along here. All right, that's kind of the general background for the sacrament of baptism. Um, let's dig into the scriptural basis. All right, so if you turn to the very beginning, Genesis 1. All right, there's words here that kind of clue us into what's going to happen through the rest of the scripture. It's uh, a phrase here at the very beginning of creation. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now... You may struggle with the Bible and finding things, but this should be the one place where you don't struggle. You know, just go to the beginning. <laughs> and that's how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom. Verse 1, creation occurs. Right? Everything after that is what God does to the creation that he has already created. Right? He creates right there in verse 1. Then he forms what's created. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, right? So there's a problem. It doesn't have form and it doesn't have structure or uh, occupants. So it's without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the water. That's the one I want you to focus on. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the water, right? Spirit and water. That's a theme that we're going to see carried out, particularly in the New Testament. All right, wherever you see water and spirit together, it's prefiguring baptism. Okay, because water by itself doesn't do anything, but when the spirit 
is with water, that's the power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that makes baptism do what it does, right? The, the Holy Spirit uses the grace given by Jesus' sacrifice, and that is the power which regenerates us and makes us Christians. And one other line here, skip down to verse 6. And it said, And God said, Let there be a, a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Right. So out of the waters comes land. That's significant. We're going to see how that plays out in the next uh, couple of chapters here. All right, so land is the sign of life-giving. Now, it's the thing about water. Let's talk about water for a second in a general sense. There's two kind of opposing aspects to what water does, right? What are we made mainly of, right? We're made of water, right? Water is the thing that allows life on Earth, one of the things, but the significant thing. You know, scientists are trying to figure out, you know, if there's life on other planets. I saw an article about this in the news today. You know, and one of the things that they're looking for is, is there water, right? Because if there's water on a planet, maybe they think there might be life there. But that's like the prerequisite, right? Water. Water is life-giving. We need water to have life. But in the opposite uh, spectrum, water is also death, right? If there's too much of it, if you drop into the water, you know, and you can't swim, you're going to drown, all right, so water can be deadly as well. Um, I remember a few years back, uh, do you remember the, the big tsunami that hit uh, in Southeast Asia? What was that, like 2004, somewhere around there? It was like 250,000 people died. There was this massive earthquake under the water and the, the upturn of the land underneath the ocean caused this huge wave that when it got towards shore, there was like 100-foot waves that just swept people away it was a horrible thing you know so water can be absolutely deadly uh, you know rain inland you can have mudslides um, we've had serious floods around here at times water can be incredibly destructive it can be both life-giving but it also can be destructive right and that's important for understanding what baptism actually does and in fact a few chapters later you go to chapter 9 I'm sorry, chapter 7 of Genesis, and you have the story of Noah and the Flood. Okay. Noah and the Flood, there's two different aspects of this, and the scriptures actually look at this as initially like decreation. What did we see? In Genesis 1, we had the spirit hovering on the face of the water, and then the land rises up amongst the water. Well, in the Flood... People have gotten so wicked that God destroys everyone, right? Except for Noah and his family. But we have decreation because the waters cover up the land, right? And that's, it's primarily the water from the deep that rises up. You know, it rains for 40 days, but that's not what covers the land. If you look at the text, the water actually rises up. It spills up from, you know, it almost depicts it like water in caverns that comes up uh, to envelop the land. So what is being depicted is decreation because of the sinfulness of man. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 8, the reverse happens. So what we're seeing here in chapter 8 is sort of a, a recreation. You know, creation happening again as the waters recede and land rises up. Now, what's going on here? Uh, St. Peter, in his first epistle, 
comments on this in chapter uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Now this one you might want to turn to and take a look at if you've got your Bible open. Uh, it's towards the end, after all of Paul's letters, after, after Hebrews, you got James, and then 1 Peter after that. So chapter 3, and we're going to come back to this one a little later as well, this particular passage, it's important. But St. Peter is commenting on uh, what happens to the soul, and he talks about baptism in verse 18, he says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay, so Jesus didn't just die and rise right, right away, right? He was dead, and on the third day he rose. So what happened in the meantime? And that's what he's commenting on. He went to uh, what the Hebrews called Sheol, the abode of the dead, right? Those who are in prison, as he refers to it. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. So even those who have died can hear the gospel. Verse 20, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. So the saving work of baptism, right? And he relates it back to Noah, that Noah was saved by the ark. Now this is, uh, you may have heard of the bark of Peter, the church being called that. A bark is just a, another word for a boat, you know, or an ark. Um, but that's one of the reasons why churches actually have their shape in tr- terms of traditional churches. Have you ever noticed and looked at a church and you go into the inside, a traditional one now, where you've got the real tall walls and then the peak? You know, what it is is an upside-down boat. That's what the symbolism is, right? It's our salvation. You know, that's how the church is viewed. It's like Noah's Ark. It saves us. So what happens in the flood? Sin is wiped away. All the, the evil people are wiped away by the water. But Noah is saved through the flood. Right? That's what Peter is getting at here. Baptism corresponds to this. Right? It's a symbol. God uses actual physical events to point forward to realities that are coming in the New Testament. Uh, the fancy word for it is typology. It's a type. Okay? It's a, like a foreshadowing of what is to come. All right, like I said, we'll come back to that passage uh, in just a bit. So, there's more, though, in the Old Testament. Uh, The one that, the event that really uh, is pointed to a great deal in the early church, the the symbolism of it, which was used to catechize people who were coming into the church, is from Moses, right? When his people were enslaved in Egypt, and he brought them out through. And what does he do? He crosses the Red Sea. Okay, that the early church always looked at and said this was a symbol for baptism, right? Because the idea here is, as Paul talks about, sin is like slavery for the soul, right? So the people of God, in uh, particularly in the book of Exodus, when they're stuck down in Egypt, 
it represents sinfulness that exists in the soul. The Egyptians are a metaphor for sin, right? And the people are trapped with sin. And God leads them out, right? And how does he lead him? There's a, remember, there's a pillar of uh, cloud that leads them during the day and a pillar of fire that leads them at night. This represents the Holy Spirit and it leads the people out. It leads them to the Red Sea and the Red Sea splits. Again, same type of symbolism. The land rises up, right? Symbolism for creation. And the people are able to go through into the wilderness and escape the slavery of sin. Okay? This, again, the early church always pointed to this as a representation of baptism in the Old Covenant. And there's more, right? That's the first generation. And remember what happens, you know, the people worship the golden calf, they fail, God tries to bring them into covenant, but they fall on their face, sin, and eventually that generation will die away. Um, God leads them to the promised land, but they won't go in because they're afraid of the people that are there. So it's the second generation. Remember, they're in the wilderness for 40 years before they go into the promised land. But how do they go into the promised land? All right, and we see this in the book of um, Joshua. That, and, and by the way, Joshua, um, the word, the name Jesus is the same as Joshua, Yeshua. All right, it's the same name. It's just transliterated. And so it's, it's the, actually the same name. So Joshua, Jesus, leads them into the promised land, right? And how does he do it? Through the Ark of the Covenant. The Levites bring the Ark of the Covenant, which represents uh, Jesus, because it's the word of God in stone, right? In this box. The Levites bring it into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River opens up, right? And they're able to walk through into the promised land. Okay. The symbolism here, again, refers to baptism. Okay, so twice now, first generation and second generation, they're led through waters into safety. Okay. Everybody good so far? Any questions or comments? All right, so one last thing that happens during the Old Testament period, which is significant in terms of, of water, again, for, for baptism. Uh, are, there are two episodes here. The first one's in Exodus 17. And what happens here is the people of God are out in the wilderness. They've just come out. This is the first generation now. And they've come out into the wilderness, and immediately they start complaining to Moses, we don't have any water to drink, Right? So Moses complains to God, and God says, take your staff. There's a rock over there. Hit the rock once, and water will come forth for the people. Right? So he does it. Water comes out, and the people are saved. And there's another episode, too, in Numbers 20, where the same thing happens. And this one gets Moses in trouble um, because God tells him, he doesn't tell him to hit the rock this time. He says, speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. But Moses is so upset with his fellow Hebrews that he goes to it and he smacks the rock twice and then water comes out. And for that reason, because he doesn't do exactly what God told him, he's not allowed to go into the promised land. And Paul comments on this in 1 Corinthians. So uh, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians? This is a, a really important passage here. 
because it also kind of ties the sacrament of baptism in um, with the old covenant itself. The very beginning of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. So you have the four Gospels, you have the Acts of the Apostles, you've got the book of Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. <laughs> chapter 10. Everybody good? So the beginning here of chapter 10, 1 Corinthians. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, right? So he's talking about the Exodus generation. He's talking about the cloud that represents the Holy Spirit that led them through the wilderness, right? They're all under the cloud. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, okay? And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptism is like a symbol for uh, like an introduction or a inauguration or, uh, you know, it's, what's that? Initiation. Initiation. That's the word I'm trying to think of. It's getting late in the day. The old brain cells aren't firing too hard. All right. So it's their initiation into it. Okay. And that'll become more specific in uh, another area when we get to Colossians. But they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does the cloud represent, we said? The Holy Spirit. We've got spirit and water, right? The Holy Spirit and the water. I told you it would come back. And all ate the same supernatural food. That's the manna, right? Again, we'll make a lot of this when we get to the Eucharist. But remember, baptism and the Eucharist are the two pillars that signify all the sacraments. We saw that when we looked at Jesus when he died in John's Gospel last time, and the soldier pierced him through with the spear and blood and water came out the water representing baptism the blood representing the eucharist right paul is doing the same thing here except he's talking about the water and then the food the manna they all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them that's the passage we just talked about in exodus and numbers they all drank from the rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Right? And Jesus is that rock. And the sacraments flow from him, from his side. That's what Paul is getting at here. That's the significance of, of baptism. It is the work of Christ from beginning to end. Okay. So, let's talk about what happens in the New Testament directly in terms of how it uh, anticipates baptism and then how baptism is realized, right? We looked at the very first passage last week was uh, from the end of Matthew's gospel. Remember that uh, where Matthew reports Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's where the form where baptism comes from, by the way. Those are Jesus' words, his instructions to how to baptize. Right? But let's look at when Jesus himself is baptized, and let's go to Mark's gospel. Now again, last time we talked about how all the sacraments rely for their, their uh, power. It comes through the Holy Spirit, but the source of that power is in Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. Right? Particularly his passion. You remember when we saw that with uh, 
the two brothers and they asked for one to stand on Jesus' right and the other one on his left in the kingdom, right? And he talked about, can you undergo the baptism with which I am to be baptized and drink the chalice in which I will have to drink, right? Okay, so where's all this coming from? We go to uh, the beginning of Mark chapter 1 and we see Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in chapter 1 verse 9 9 through 11 in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan notice it's the Jordan River right where Yeshua Joshua led the people through to the promised land it's the same place right so the significance of that it's the same waters that saved the Hebrew people okay literally the same waters He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Right now, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Right. But the waters of baptism needed to come in contact with Jesus. This is something we see throughout Jesus' life in the New Testament, okay? Things that would normally flow one direction for anybody else flow in the exact opposite direction for Jesus, okay? He turns everything up upside down on its head. Remember, for the Jews, ritual purity was all essential, right? You had to be ritually pure in order to participate in the liturgical life of the Jewish people. So there were certain things that you just couldn't do Like if you touched a dead body, that would make you ritually impure and you would have to go through, you would have to sacrifice certain animals and go through a certain procedure in order to become ritually pure again before you could go back to the synagogue, right? Or to the temple. But when Jesus touches a dead body, he doesn't become impure. The dead body comes back to life, right? Or when someone touches a leper, they become ritually impure. When Jesus touches a leper, it's the exact opposite. The leper is cleansed. So everything works in reverse in terms of the old covenant for Jesus. The the flow of power and authority is reversed. So when Jesus is baptized, his sins aren't forgiven because he has none. But the waters of baptism are now empowered to forgive sins. Okay? Now, there's something else going on here. A lot of times, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, John's baptism that he's performing, what is that? It points forward to what Jesus is going to accomplish, right? But it doesn't give grace the way Jesus' baptism that he inaugurates will. Okay. Yes, that's exactly right, right? But it, it prepares the soil, if you will, for what's to come. And, um, and John himself mentions this. It's in Matthew's gospel. You don't have to turn to it, but let me just read you what John himself says about baptism, his baptism versus Jesus' baptism. Uh, let's see here. Oop, I'm in the wrong spot.
Ah, I'm sorry. I got it right here. And this is John commenting about his baptism and about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. I baptize you. This is chapter 3, verse 11 in Matthew's gospel. I baptize you with water for repentance, right? The idea is that people will feel sorry for their sins and repent. That's what John's baptism does. I baptize you with the water of repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? So it's a magnitude more than that of, you know, of uh, above what John's. It's a, it's a difference not in degree, but a difference in kind. Right? The difference between Jesus' baptism and John's baptism. Right? John's baptism is to stir the soul so that we will repent. And it will point forward to what's to come so the people will be ready for it. And there's a comment in here as well when, uh, you know, the, I believe it's the Pharisees are, are addressing John, you know, and they're asking who he is. And they're basically saying, if you're not the Messiah, then why are you baptizing? So there was an implication here that the, the coming of the Messiah would be bringing a form of baptism. Okay. All right, so back to, to Mark here. Did, did that get your answer your question? Okay. All right, back to Mark. There's a particular word here that w- what happens a lot with these uh, ancient writers, they want to link certain things together, okay, from one passage to another. So they'll use key words that only occur in different places. And when you see them, they're, they're usually unusual words that stand out. And so when you see that word pop up again, you know, it makes you think, especially if the context is similar, that, hey, I'm supposed to put these two ideas p- together. Well, there's a word here that happens in the beginning of Mark, and it reappears at the end of Mark as well. Okay? And it's the word that's used to describe the, the opening up of the heavens. Uh, this is from verse 10 in chapter 1. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened. The Greek word there is schizo. It's where we get the word schism um, or schizophrenic, somebody who's got a split mind. It means to tear open or rip open. Okay? Schizo. The heavens were schizoed, ripped open, and the Holy Spirit comes down. Okay? The same thing happens at the end of Mark in chapter 15 when Jesus dies. So if you flip over to the end of Mark in chapter 15, verse 37. And it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn, schizo, in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that he had thus breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. All right, so it's the same word that's used to describe the ripping open of the, the heavens and the Holy Spirit coming down. And then the ripping of the curtain in the temple. Why is that significant? Well, the, the temple was divided up into three areas. There was the outer court where um, the Jews could be, the inner court where the sacrifices would take place. But then the very heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies. It was a cubed-shaped room. 
uh, you know, same height, same width, same depth. And inside, at least up until the Babylonian captivity, the Ark of the Covenant would reside, right? It was the holiest site on earth where God's law was written in stone, was encased in the Ark of the Covenant, the holiest object in all the world. If you read back in uh, the Old Testament, anybody who touched the Ark of the Covenant would die instantly. You know, you just don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. Um, And that was at the center, right? When the temple was uh, consecrated, when, when Solomon built the temple and he consecrated it, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that he had, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Holy of Holies, the cloud that we saw back in Exodus. And in fact, we saw the same thing uh, in the tent of meeting with Moses. The cloud would come down. It's this similar type thing, right? So the, this spot, the Holy of Holies, was the holiest place on earth, and it re- represented God's presence among men. The thing is, after the golden calf incident back in Exodus, when they worshipped the golden calf, nobody could have access to God except the high priest. And that was what the Day of Atonement was for. Okay, The, the Jews still celebrate the Day of Atonement. Once a year, uh, they remember the golden calf incident. Right Back when the temple was still around, that was the only day of the year where the high priest could go into the temple into the Holy of Holies, right? Just once a year, okay, to offer a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. Now, the Holy of Holies had a curtain in front of it, right? Nobody could go behind the curtain. God, whose presence was there, was separated from the people by this curtain. But when Jesus dies on the cross, that curtain is ripped open. God's presence is no longer contained there. He is released, if you will. You know, his presence now becomes open to all of us. That's what happens with Jesus' death. And it shows that because it is ripped from the top to the bottom. And, you know, if if people were going to rip it and tear it open, they would have to rip it from the bottom up to show that this is an act of God it's ripped from top down, right? So God is coming down through the waters of baptism upon Jesus and then from there upon all of us because he's no longer contained in the Holy of Holies. He's no longer separated from man, right? That's the symbolism here. That's what Mark, by using this word choice, is trying to do. He's trying to associate Jesus' death on the cross with the saving power of baptism. They're tied together. The effect, the power of baptism comes from Jesus' sacrifice. Okay. Now, a a little commentary from Paul about the significance of baptism. If we go to Romans chapter 6. Again, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you got the Acts of the Apostles, and then Romans, right? Romans chapter 6. Super, super significant passage here, okay? Because he lays it all out. Paul lays out the significance of what baptism is, how it works, and what it does for us. This is definitely one you want to keep for future reference here. 
And it begins with a question in verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3 of Romans. And he's asking his audience here, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Let's pause there for a second. Remember, we said water has two different aspects to it. It's life-giving, but it also has the potential for death, right? So when we are baptized, we're baptized into Jesus' death. Remember, he was the representative man. Just as Adam was the representative man when we were tested at our origin and Adam fell, and therefore we all fell, right? Jesus is the new man. He's the new Adam who represents us, right? But Jesus doesn't fail because he is God made incarnate. God who has taken on human flesh, so he cannot fail, right? So, but he died for us. The, the curse of Adam, going back to Genesis 3, was death, right? Death, death entered into the world because of that sin. So Jesus destroys death through death. It's like spiritual jujitsu. He uses the power of death against itself, right? So he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That's the symbolism. When you're covered with water, you're going to die, right? You can't breathe. There, we were buried with him, therefore, Uh, by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the flip side of it. Christ doesn't stay dead. On the third day, he rises again as the representative man. Okay? And so we rise with him. For if we've been, this is verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our former man was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. We're saved from sin through his death. Verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin, but if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, this is the punchline here, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, again, the background for this is that we die to God in Adam, right? Original sin, that's the significance of it. But Christ undoes that, and more than that. And Paul makes this, if you go back to the, uh, towards the end of the last chapter, verse 5 in Romans, Paul makes this uh, pretty evident in verse 19. This is another one you might want to circle. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, right? That's Adam, his disobedience we were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. Right? We are really transformed by what Jesus does through, through his death and resurrection applied to us through baptism. Right? We aren't just declared righteous, 
we're made righteous. Okay, it truly affects us. And that's why when you go back to that passage from 1 Peter that we looked at towards the beginning of class, and he's talking about the ark, right, and how Noah was saved. Uh during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Right? So we are saved through the waters of baptism. It's not just some ritual like a lot of Christians will say. Right? It's, it actually conveys the grace that it signifies. Okay. Now, with a few minutes we have left, I want to show you uh, from John's gospel how baptism is viewed. Uh, Because John, he gives you a a, a big image, a big picture of baptism and and what's going on here. Okay, Remember we saw water in the spirit from the very beginning of Genesis. John in his gospel depicts what Jesus does as a new creation, right? You see that right from the beginning because Genesis begins in the beginning, right? John's gospel begins in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is God, right? Now, I don't have too much time to to go into this in great depth, but let me just highlight a few aspects of this. He portrays this gospel as a new creation, right? And the old creation we saw in Genesis, you know, the world was made in sick, or the man was created on the sixth day, but he was created for the seventh day. So creation, the totality of creation takes seven days, right? So we have seven days for the first week signifying creation. We talked about the number seven, how it's the word for oath, you know, when you swear an oath, which is how you form a covenant, how you form kinship bonds. Think marriage, you know. You swear an oath. In Hebrew, that's to seven oneself. So God is swearing an oath on the seventh day here, creating a covenant with creation, specifically with Adam and Eve. Right? So they are created in covenant with God, you know, because of the seventh day. And so they're in a right relationship with God. They're tested and they fail. So the seven days. John is depicting the beginning of this in seven days. He doesn't say seven days, but he gives you a series of time references that when you look at them carefully, add up to seven days. And he does this, um, for example, in John 1, verse 29, with the reference the next day. That's the first one. There's three of these references to the next day. In verse 29, 35 and 43 the next day the next day and the next day well when you say the next day what does that imply right it implies there was a first day right that was in the beginning then there was the next day that's your second day right first day and next day with the first reference you have two days now the next verse that includes the next day that brings you the three days and then there's one more next day that's four days right Go to chapter 2. What do we see? How does it begin? On the third day. On the third day. What's 4 plus 3? Seven. 7. And what's happening on that day? It's a wedding. 
So you're thinking Adam and Eve, right? This is creation. And here's a wedding. There's a husband and wife. The interesting thing about it is that the husband and wife are never mentioned. Only two people are really mentioned specifically that we know of, right? I mean, there's some other characters, you know, Stuart, but we don't know who they are. Two are mentioned who we know who they are. Jesus, obviously, but also his mother, Mary, right? They're being depicted as the new Adam and the new Eve, right? On the seventh day. Again, a recreation here. And what does Jesus do? The miracle that he performs, what does it have to do with? Water. He takes water, and what does he do? He turns it into wine. And eventually he's going to take the wine and turn that into blood, right? So built in right away, we have an image of the sacraments. Yeah. So when you say John 2 on the third day, you're saying that's the third day after the fourth next day. Yeah, in the beginning is the first day, right? And then we have the next day, which is the day after that. And that's, yeah. So it, the... The actual days aren't important for John. He just wants you to count them up and realize this is seven, right? He began within the beginning. He wants you to grasp right away. This is creation again. Yeah. So going back um, to that first next day back in verse one, we have what? We have John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, right? Then we have the water becoming wine in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we have Jesus being visited by this guy, Nicodemus, at night. Right? He represents the Jews. It's significant that he's coming at night because there's going to be a, a woman that approaches him uh, in chapter 4 who comes at him during the day. Light and dark imagery is very important with John. Right? Don't have too much time to go into that, but... Nicodemus represents the Jews and they're in darkness. They don't understand. And he goes, Nicodemus goes to Jesus because he knows he's somebody important, a representative of God, a prophet, right? And so he says, this is chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus responds, uh, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is the line that you get from uh, a lot of people who, uh, you know, from, from Protestantism who want you to become a Christian. They'll come up and they ask you, have you been born again? Right? It's a reference to this passage with Nicodemus. Have you been born again? All right. Catholics always, you know, scratch their head about that and rarely understand what they're getting at because we've been baptized, you know? And baptism is when we are born again, right? Because the passage doesn't stop there. Jesus explains a little bit more. We go to verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? So being born again is the same as being born by water and the Spirit. Remember what Paul said in Romans 6. When we go into the waters of baptism, we die with Christ. The old man dies, but we rise up in new life. 
that is being born again because the old self has died, right? And the new self rises up from the waters of baptism. So when we are baptized, water in the spirit, that is when we are born again, right? And look at what everything, what led up to this, you know, it's creation again. You have John the Baptist, you have the waters at Cana. And right after this episode, We see, where is it? In verse 22. After this, this is same chapter, verse three, chapter 3, verse 22. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea. There he remained with them and baptized. Right? So we've got baptism all over the place with this. The context for his discussion with Nicodemus is baptism, water in the Spirit. Right? And then we have this woman in chapter 4. And what does she do? She goes to Jesus, and Jesus asks her for water. Right? They're at a well. What does a well contain? Water. Right? And also, by the way, if you look at the Old Testament, specifically Genesis, that is the, the nightclub, if you will, where people go to find their brides in the Old Covenant, you know? You always meet them at a well. Well, well, well. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's where you go to find your bride, you know? That's what happened with, with uh, Jacob and Isaac and, you know, Moses, in fact, too. He met his bride at a well. All right? So it's Jacob's well. And so he asks her for a drink. And her response, remember, she's not a Jew, and she responds in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? You know, it's like a double doozy here. Not only is she a woman, and you don't talk to other women, you know, as a, a respectable Jew, but she's also a Samaritan. They hated Samaritans. They were considered others, you know, out of the covenant. And his response is, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked me, and he would have given him, given you living water. And she responds, Sir, you have ne- nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Uh, Jesus responded in verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, right? That's what baptism is. It's water that will give you eternal life. All right. So there's a ton of stuff in the New Testament that refers to baptism. Um, the, the book of Colossians um, views baptism, let me at least get this one in, views baptism as a replacement or uh, the New Testament version of what circumcision was for the Old Testament. Okay? In the Old Testament, what was circumcision? What did it signify? It signified entering into covenant. It signified when you officially become a Jew. Okay? And so, the book of Colossians says baptism is our version of circumcision. Right? And in fact, when are you circumcised in the Old Testament? On the eighth day, right? Well, St. Cyprian records uh, in one of his uh, accounts, 
there was a council in North Africa in the 3rd century. This is the 200s, really early on. And it declared that Christians need not delay baptism of infants until the 8th day. People understood that baptism was like the new circumcision. It was how you entered the covenant. How you became in a right relationship with God. Right? They saw it as a new circumcision. Well, when did you get circumcised? On the eighth day. So they figured, if you have a newborn baby, you have to wait to the eighth day to have them baptized. And so the council said, you don't have to wait, right? It, it's so important, get the, bapti- the babies baptized right away. So there was, you know, physical issues of bleeding too much and such for, for circumcision. You know, there was beyond spiritual reasons as to why you would wait for the eighth day. Um, but baptism, you know, it's so important you know, and, and infant mortality was so great, get that baby baptized right away. Okay. So, and I'll leave you with uh, one last text from Paul, which kind of sums up his understanding of baptism. This is from the book of Titus, chapter 3. There's only three chapters. So, He says, starting in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by men and hating one another. Not a real pleasant picture, right? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy. By, this is how he saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. There's water in the Spirit again, right? The washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life. Heirs. What does that mean? Sons and daughters of God. We enter into covenant with God. Right, so we're out of time, a little bit over, sorry about that, but I uh, hope you get a, a better appreciation for the significance of baptism. So I'll close with a prayer, and if you have any questions, feel free to ask afterwards, but I don't want to keep people who have to get out of here, um, keep them any longer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Merciful Lord, let the evening prayer of your church come before you. May we do your work faithfully. Free us from sin and make us secure in your love. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Anybody have?